You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Beginning of your Bible, if you're looking for it, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And today we are beginning a four-week sermon series in the book of Ruth called Redeemer, Hope Has Come in the Little Town of Bethlehem. Uh, this sermon series is part of what we call our Advent sermon series. You, you heard Juan mention that earlier, that word Advent. Uh, the word Advent means arrival, means arrival. And so during the season of Advent, Christians take time to just slow, sort of slow down from the hustle and bustle of the season and fix our, our hearts and our minds on the arrival or the coming of Jesus our Savior and our Shepherd. And so Advent is a season where we sort of relive the anticipation of the first arrival of Christ, which in this season, it tunes our hearts to celebrate Christmas rightly. But then also what it does is, as we remember sort of this anticipation of His first arrival, it reminds us how we're supposed to live the rest of the year for his, in anticipation of His second arrival. That's how we're supposed to live. So it's, it's the season we stop, we pause, and we anticipate the arrival of Christ the King. Um, so here's what we're going to be doing. This week, we will send out a, a church-wide email to hopefully just inform you how can you celebrate the season of Advent. So typically what you do is you take the four weeks leading up to Christmas and each night, you, maybe you do a devotional. So there are Advent devotionals. Last year, we were able to give everybody uh, the a Paul Tripp Advent devotional. We'll see if we have some extras of those. We'll pass those out uh, next week. But we'll send links and just some ideas you can do if you're single or if, you're, if you have kids. So be looking for that this week, okay? All right. Um, in light of that, let's pray and turn our attention to the book of Ruth. Lord, thank you for the gathering of your people. Lord, you have gathered. You continue to gather us together because you have good intended for us. You draw us to you and you keep drawing us to you to sing your praise, to remember your goodness, to know you more so that our hearts then are filled with great joy in our Savior. Lord, we pray you would meet us in your word. As we open your word in the book of Ruth, Open our eyes to see you in all of Scripture. Open our hearts, Lord, to be amazed at your goodness. And Lord, may you be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray and the church says, amen. 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 The book of Ruth is, is one of those books that I think you sort of don't always hear about. Um, it's a little book. It's only four chapters long, so hence we're only going to be in it for four weeks. It's not filled with signs and wonders like the book of Exodus, so it just doesn't seem quite as exciting. Um, it, it, doesn't, it, it actually doesn't even talk about a whole lot about God. Like It doesn't say God did this and God did that and God intervened. And so you can almost sort of just say, well, what does this book have to offer us? What does it have to offer? And you can kind of sort of quickly skip over it. Um, what this book does that is unique for us is it zooms in 
almost with this close-up view of real life with real people living in a sin-broken world, experiencing very real difficulties. And it highlights the realness of life so much so that you're kind of left asking, how is God at work in the daily lives of the people that I'm reading about in their very difficult circumstances? And what this book intends to do as you read through it is show us just that. It shows us real life. It shows us people living life, going through difficult things. It shows us relationships and death and all sorts of things. And it's training us to see God at work in all of life, in the bitter and the sweet. So as we kind of enter into four weeks, here are five things, five key themes you should be looking for as you read through the book of Ruth. First, we'll see the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness, a a word that's called in the Old Testament chesed, Um, his chesed, his steadfast love and faithfulness, his covenant kindness towards his people, despite their often being unfaithful to him. It's the first thing we'll see. Second, we'll see the Lord's mercy and grace. We are going to see his mercy and grace poured out upon undeserving people, People won't get what they fully deserve, which is his mercy, and people will get what they don't deserve, which is his grace. Third, we'll see the Lord's providence as he works in and through all things in every part of life, from the bitter to the sweet, according to his plans and purposes for his glory and our good. Fourth, we'll see how the Lord works all of that good through people. He's going to work through people. People will be a means of grace to reflect the heart of God towards one another. And we're going to see him working and doing good through people. And as they reflect the goodness of God, they shine brightly in a very sin, broken, and darkened world. And then last, fifth, we'll see the Lord's redemption of hopeless unfaithful, and undeserving people, which will ultimately point us to Christ Jesus, okay? Five things you can be looking for. So this book of Ruth will help train us, almost like putting on God-focused glasses or lenses to help see God in the ups and downs of life to help see God at work and how how he was at work in the lives of his people way back in the book of Ruth. And the same God who is their God is our God today who is at work in our bitter circumstances. And so then it can lead us to trust in him and hope in him that there is good that he is up to in the midst of trouble. Okay? All right, so in light of that, follow along with me in your Bibles as I read Ruth chapter 1, and it is long, so just, just endure with me for a moment. Hopefully, don't, don't fall asleep. Follow along with me. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem of Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, 
and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the women... The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me For your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, 
who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That is a doozy. There are three points today that follow the structure of this passage. And so the first point is this, leaving home in famine and faithlessness. Verses 1 through 5, and the points will be up on the screen. Leaving home in famine and faithlessness. The book of Ruth begins by telling us something very, very important. It tells us when exactly did all of this take place and what is happening during this time. We're told in verse 1 that the happenings of the book of Ruth took place in the days when the judges ruled, and that at this very point, there was a famine in the land. Those are two extremely important and descriptive statements that we are not to skip over, and most likely, often, we would just kind of skim over that really quickly. The fact that this is taking place in the days when the judges ruled means that the book of Ruth was taking place during the time that the book of Judges was taking place, which is right before this book, right? So the time that the book of Judges is taking place, the the book of Judges displays and shows us that it was a horrific time of spiritual and moral darkness, It was a horrific time. We're told in Judges 21-25, and this phrase is repeated in the book of Judges, this, that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you have ever read the book of Judges, there were terrible things happening in these days. Horrific, morally corrupt things spiritually depraved things were happening. Imagine, imagine with us, imagine now, imagine lawlessness in a society. No one is ruling and keeping order. Imagine just lawlessness in a a society and then imagine what people would do to one another. Imagine that. That was what was happening in these days. That's when the book of Ruth takes place. That is incredible. They they would have been terrifying days to live in filled with horrific sinfulness. God's people were supposed to be a holy and set-apart people, and yet in the book of Judges, what we see repeated over and over again is this cycle of sin and unfaithfulness to God. Yet, God's faithfulness to both discipline his people in order to lead them to repentance and to turn from their sin and return to God. And God would mercifully and graciously redeem his people and there would be a time of peace and provision in the land only for God's people to fall back into sin and unfaithfulness again and again. That's when the book of Ruth is taking place. And so it's no surprise when we also read that there is a famine taking place in the land. For the original readers who would, have, who would have read this, that would have grabbed at their hearts because there is famine in God's land. There's famine in the land of God's people. And that if, when you read through Deuteronomy and you read through the Scriptures, what that tells you is that means there's unfaithfulness in God's people. And so God has brought 
famine upon the land. God, God told them, if you are faithful to walk in my ways, to obey my statutes, I will bless the land and it will be fruitful. But if you are unfaithful, I will curse the land and cause it to not be fruitful until you return to me. So the fact that we hear this is a lawless time, everyone's doing what's in their, right in their own eyes, and there is famine in Bethlehem. It says a lot to us about the heart of God's people. And so in verses 2 through 5, we're introduced to some of those people. We're told a man named Elimelech, along with his wife Naomi and their two sons, instead of remaining in the land, God has promised to provide for his people and doing a faith-filled thing of repenting before God and turning to him and trusting him to provide and care for them as the faithful God that he is. Instead, what do they do? They leave. They leave the land God has promised to them. In a sense, leaving God. Elimelech's name literally means, names within this culture were a big deal. If you never picked up on that in the Bible, names within the culture were a big deal. The name Elimelech, do you know what it meant? God is our king. God is my king, God is our king, yet here is Elimelech leading his family to live in a foreign land among foreign kings who worshiped false gods. And he's trying to find fulfillment and provision there. We are supposed to see the irony of that. And it wasn't just a foreign land. Moab was opposed to God's people. And what began as just well, we'll just sojourn there. If you caught that, if you read that in verse 1, it says they went to sojourn, and then just a couple of verses later, they remained. What started off as, well, we'll just sojourn, we'll just go for a short time, turns into them remaining for 10 years, and their sons taking Moabite wives, doing things God told them not to do, and living in a place they should not have been. If you remember in the book of Numbers and the history of Moab, the king of Moab, whenever God's people were, were traveling through, right, they've left Egypt and they're traveling through and they come to the land of Moab. And instead of the king of Moab wanting to care and help God's people, right, the Lord said, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And they come through the land of Moab and the king of Moab refuses to care for God's people. And instead, do you remember what he does? He goes and hires Balaam to try to curse God's people. Do you remember that? Balaam and the donkey? He wants to curse God's people. So already they're starting off on a wrong foot with the Moabites. So they're coming through. The, the Moabites want to, want to curse God's people. God blesses them instead, curses the Moabites. The Moabites at one point conquered God's people. God freed them from their captivity. And so in light of all of this, there was not a good relationship there. In Deuteronomy 23, God declares that they are to have nothing to do with Moabites. They're not to worship. They're not to come into the land. We're not to be with them. You're not to mingle. You're not to marry them. Yet here are God's people in the midst of trouble. Famine has struck. And instead of turning to God and saying, God, forgive us repenting before the Lord. Here they go, 
little sheep that are prone to wander and leave the God who loves them. Forsaking the one who Moses declared in Psalm 90, in the, the one song psalm of, of Moses where he says, God, you are our dwelling place. You are our home, is what Moses is saying. Instead of remaining there, they forsake the one place that is to be their home, God himself. So leaving the land, there was more to it, spiritually symbolic of their hearts. They're looking for provision and fulfillment outside of God himself. The physical famine, the physical famine of the land was symbolic of the famine of faith in the hearts of God's people. The land was fruitless and their hearts were faithless. Before we point the finger of shame, right? Because it could be like, come on, man, just stop that, right? We read all throughout God's, God's, about God's people, generation after generation, doing such a thing. Before we point this finger of shame at them, when we look at our own lives, aren't we prone to do the very same thing? If we're honest with ourselves, aren't we tempted when it gets hard? Aren't we tempted when trial comes to try to find peace and provision or fulfillment in other things apart from God? Aren't we tempted to do that? Or how often are we tempted to try to do what is right in our own eyes instead of what God's Word actually says? To venture off into things that we know we shouldn't, into sinful things, but we tell ourselves, it's just a little sojourn. I'll just sojourn for a little while, and then the next thing we know, we're remaining. We've remained living our life in that filth that we're, we're never, where we were never supposed to be. Do you see how we are more like them than we realize? And for this family who has sought refuge and help in Moab, it gets worse, doesn't it? Elimelech dies. Their two sons die. In that culture, that, that was their source of provision and guarding and care. They've all died off, gone. Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws are left alone, broken, with no help, no safety, no provision, and no hope. Verses 1 through 5 paint a picture of just how devastating life can be and just how fruitless it is to try to find the good life outside of God himself. But by God's grace, this is not the end of the story, right? It's not the end of the story. In verses 6 through 7, there is a turn in the story. That's what I love about narratives. There are these turns all of a sudden in the stories. Our God is a great storyteller. And there's this turn in verses 6 through 7 where they go from leaving home in famine and faithlessness to now hearing of home and the Lord's kindness. That's the second point, hearing of home and the Lord's kindness. We're told that Naomi heard that the Lord had visited his people back in Bethlehem <coughs> and made their fields fruitful once again. He was ending the famine and was providing food for his wayward people. Bread had come back to the house of bread. Do you know that Bethlehem literally meant house of bread? 
And so there's this irony that the house of bread was empty of all food. But here we go in verses 6 through 7. Bread is returning. Food is returning to the house of bread. When it says that the Lord had visited his people, it literally means visit graciously. So it says the Lord had visited graciously his people. So to come to them and give them what they don't deserve. That's what grace is, to get from God what we don't deserve. God visits graciously his people, so he's giving them what they don't deserve. They had turned away from him. The Lord has graciously now turned towards them. And out of his own affections for his people, though they didn't deserve it, I just love this, he lovingly, mercifully, and graciously has provided for them once again. It's another moment as we read these, these verses. It, see, here's the funny thing. This is kind of why I gave the five points at the beginning. And if you notice, four of the five main, main things to be looking for had to do with God. Because so many times we can read these stories and it simply becomes like, hey, just be like Ruth, right? Just be faithful like Ruth. Now, there is a place to say, Ruth was faithful in reflecting God's heart. We should be like that. So there's a place for that. But that's where we go right away. And we miss God as the main character. It's his Bible. It's his word. He's the main idea. He's the main character. So even we're supposed to see that in the book of Ruth. So it's the sense of what we're supposed to begin to see when we hear that God graciously visited his people is that it's another moment and glimpse in the scripture, where God is revealing his steadfast love and faithfulness towards his people. It is his covenant kindness towards them. They haven't done anything to earn it. They've been wayward, but yet look how good he continues to be to them. That is his chesed, his covenant kindness, his steadfast love and faithfulness. These are the people that generations before he determined, that's a key word, whenever you hear about Ruth determining, he determined to set his love upon them, his people. He determined to love them and be faithful to them and do good to them despite them. <laughs> it's amazing. These are God's covenant people. And so even when they don't deserve it or did anything to earn it, we see his unrelenting and determined kindness towards them. As we read these verses, that is the truth that is intended to echo in our hearts. That our God is a most faithful and loving God, even when we are the most unfaithful and unloving towards him. That's why I love the song we sang this morning, Oh, come, all you unfaithful ones. Come to the faithful one. Oh, my. It's meant to cause us, as we see these truths, it's meant to cause us to respond to this God. It's meant to cause us to turn to him and to trust him, or maybe even for some, to return to him 
and trust him. In verse 6, a key word is introduced in the story that in its root form is repeated 12 more times in the rest of that one chapter we just read. I wonder if you caught it. That, that word is the word return. This chapter begins with those that are wayward, leaving home, turning from God who is the true place of peace and provision and the devastation and hopelessness that that brings, but now highlights the call to return. Turn from the hopelessness of a life apart from God and turn to the one whom true hope is found. To this God of steadfast love and faithfulness. To this God of covenant kindness. He is open to you turning to him. He is open to you returning to him. In fact, he is calling and beckoning. Return. That is the call of this chapter. Return. Twelve times Turn, return. It's beautiful. That's what, that's what we begin to see happen in the rest of this story, a, a turning or returning to God. And though, though we'll still see the struggling hearts of real people, real struggles here in, a, here in a second, we will see just how faithful and kind the Lord is towards those who turn to Him. So that leads us to our third and final point. Returning home, bitter, blind, yet sweetly blessed. Verses 8 through 22. Bitter, blind, yet sweetly blessed. Naomi sets out to return to Bethlehem with her and her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, insist that they stay with her. But Naomi, recognizing just how hard it would be for two widowed Moabite women and, and her herself being widowed to go to the land of Judah and live a fruitful life. And she herself has nothing, zero, to offer them. And on top of that, it's the time of the judges. And so you could just imagine the lawlessness of the land. And here come these ladies who are alone and helpless, who are going to need help from other people. Oh, my goodness. So she basically tells them, look, Go back to your homeland in Moab, to your people. She even says to your gods where you will be received and just maybe you can have a new life for yourself is essentially what she's saying. Go find good outside of God's land. She's continuing there, isn't she? Go find. I have nothing for you. And so what do we see? We see Orpah, we're told, kisses Naomi and heads back to Moab to her people and to her false gods. But Ruth, Ruth, we're told, clings to Naomi. She clings to Naomi. Something incredible and unexpected happens in this story. It's not just a story of, of Naomi returning to God and the promised land. We see in this moment Ruth, an outsider, an outcast, one who at one point would have been considered an enemy to God and his people, turning away from her old life, turning away from her rebel people, turning away from her false gods, and now turning to God and God's people. She, she commits herself. Essentially, she covenants herself. She is entering into a covenant 
with God and God's people, specifically with Naomi. Listen to her sweet words. These are sweet words. I'll tell you a little. Danielle took some of these words and put them in our wedding vows. And I'm sure there are hundreds of people who have done that. But they are some of the sweetest words, aren't they? They are meaningful. There is covenant language there. There is commitment language there. But it's not just merely commitment and covenant. It's also in Ruth, coming out of her mouth, it's conversion language, precious saints. It's conversion and commitment that's leaving her mouth. Listen to what she says. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Amen. Amen. Turning from the false gods of saying, no, your God will be my God, and so then you will be my people. That's her heart. It's this commitment and conversion. Ruth has turned in this moment to the God of steadfast love and faithfulness, and with a heart reflective of someone who has genuinely turned to God in faith, she reflects the heart of God towards God's people, specifically towards Naomi, despite Naomi essentially pushing her away, right? She's, no, just go. Don't come. No, go. She's, she's pushing her away, telling her to leave. And just despite that, Ruth is filled with a determination, we're told in verse 18, a determined heart to love and do good towards and remain with Naomi, even when Naomi doesn't want it. Oh, precious saints, Ruth's heart of covenant kindness towards Naomi is symbolic and reflective of the covenant kindness of God towards his people. Determined love. that doesn't depend upon what you're doing and what you're saying, but says, no, I'm choosing to love you. In God, through Christ, he sets his affections upon us. He says, because of what Christ has done in his new covenant with you, my affections are for you. I am all in for your goodness. I am for you. I am with you. I am faithful, determined love, precious saints. Ruth's determined love reflects God's determined love for his, for his people. So sweet. The hope is that Naomi would see the means of grace that Ruth is to her then. Ruth is a gift of friendship and care from the hand of God towards Naomi. Ruth is a gift from God to Naomi. And it's, it's to lift Naomi's heart in the midst of her trouble and to cause her to thank God. But sadly, is that how Naomi responds? No. Naomi doesn't see it. She doesn't see it. Naomi reveals what's in the depths of her heart in verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, she basically says, I'm without hope. In verse 13, she says, I'm bitter. I'm bitter. And she believes the hand of God is against her, she says. She's not returning broken and repentant over the waywardness. She's not aware of God's kindness to her. She's not returning with a humble and contrite heart before the Lord. She says, I'm bitter. 
I'm bitter. In fact, in verses 19 through 21, she and Ruth are entering Bethlehem together. And the women of the city are gathered to greet her. They're in an uproar. But she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant. Pleasant. Call me Mara. And you know what Mara means? Bitter. Bitter. Don't call me pleasant. I'm returning, but don't call me pleasant. I am bitter. She says, for the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Did she really go away full? She might have had a family. She's counting those as riches, as her treasure, but she's leaving God. She's leaving the promised land of God's people. How is she full? She thinks she's full because of what she has here, but the reality is she was leaving already empty. She was already leaving empty. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me, she says. Those words reveal a lot about Naomi's heart. They reveal that though she sees God as reigning over every circumstance of her life, Isaiah 45 tells us that God reigns over the calamity. So in one sense, she's, she's right, doctrinally. She, she, she knows something of the doctrine and understanding of God, but not only is she bitter, her heart has become blind with forgetfulness, forgetting the full and true character of her God towards her. That He's good. He's covenanted with you. He's good. He's not set out against His people. He's faithful. And even when they rebel and go wayward, what, has, what have we seen all throughout history? Even she would have seen it already in the history before her, how faithful he is to discipline them, but not to harm them, but to discipline in a way that brings them back to him, that turns them from their sin and turns them to know the fullness of God himself. She's forgetting that he does not rebuke to cause harm, but he rebukes with a goodness intended to restore them to himself. <coughs> She's not seeing it. She's blind to the goodness of God. Though she wandered away, the Lord has allowed her to return to him and return to the land of his people. The Lord has graciously provided food once again for his people when they don't deserve it and even has provided for her a precious daughter-in-law who loves her not for anything she can offer, but reflects the heart of God for her, and yet she doesn't see it. She's blind, bitter and blind. Precious saints, how often is that the case for us? How often is that the case for us <laughs> in the midst of our trouble we either begin to believe God is out to get us, He's just out to get me. Or that He has ceased to be good towards me. 
Or we can just flat out become blind to seeing His goodness to us in the midst of our trouble. Naomi's story reminds us that we can trust God in His steadfast love and faithfulness when He is covenanted with us and He is faithful to deal rightly with us no matter what we are experiencing. The original readers of Ruth would have heard Naomi call herself Mara. This, this just grabs at me. This, this to me is the richness of the word of God here. They would have heard Naomi call herself Mara, and they would have been seeing what was happening, her bitterness, and they would have immediately made the connection to another story. Another story in the history of God's people, a story that took place in Exodus 15, when God's people had just miraculously crossed over the Red Sea. They crossed through the Red Sea. God, can you imagine? Pillar of fire. There's crossing of the Red Sea. It's open to them. They cross on dry land, swallowing up the enemies of God's people. They get across to the other side, and now what happens is they're thirsty. They're thirsty in the desert. Remember, they had just seen the incredible goodness of God for them. But now they're thirsty. And it says they come to a place in the middle of the desert, and there's water there, but the water is bitter. And they call the place Mara. And they grumble against God because they perceive God is not caring for us. He's not providing for us in the desert. And they grumble against God. They forget how good and faithful He just has been. So will He not be good and faithful now? And they call the place Mara, bitter. But do you know what God does? Oh, Do you know what He does in His steadfast love and faithfulness? It says He compels Moses to find a wooden log. And he tells him to throw it into the bitter water and it will become sweet. And that's what Moses does. And the Lord provides once again a sweetness in the midst of the bitterness. Once again, his faithfulness in the midst of grumbling hearts. Exodus chapter 15 and Ruth chapter 1 kind of go like this. And their stories of the Lord's unfailing goodness towards undeserving, rebellious, and grumbling people. It shows us how God is at work in the midst of bitter circumstances and grumbling hearts to display His grace to grumblers. Isn't that good? Oh my, isn't that good? As he turns the bitter to sweet. Precious saints, on this side of the cross, on this side of the cross, when we perceive that before Christ, we, we were wayward wanderers in the wilderness of our sin. Wayward wanderers, bitter and enduring the bitterness of our sin, brokenness with grumbling hearts against God, not deserving the goodness of God, but instead deserving to die a sinner's death and to never receive sweet relief from the bitterness of our punishment for our sins. 
But do you know what he did? God, once again, in his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love and undeserving love towards us, towards sinners like us, look at what God has done, precious saints, just as he provided in the wilderness a wooden log to be thrown into the fire, the the bitter water, that it may become sweet. God the Son, Christ Jesus, born in Bethlehem, the bread of heaven, we're told, born in the house of bread, the living water for the parched and thirsty soul has come. Jesus himself was placed upon a wooden cross and willingly took upon himself the bitterness of our sin's punishment. He was thrown into the fury of God's wrath so that we could taste of the sweet relief of his salvation. He turns the bitter into sweet, doesn't he? Oh my goodness. Praise the Lord, precious saints. Praise the Lord. And so then, the faithful one himself has given himself for the unfaithful one over and over and over again. And we join in with generations of God's people like Naomi and Ruth, and we have received the same thing but better in the person and work of Christ Jesus himself. Amen? Amen, precious saints. How we have received such grace and mercy from God when we didn't deserve it. And may we, by His grace, never forget it. So that when you endure the troubles of today, because you will go through trouble, won't you? You live in a sin-broken world, and you wrestle still with sin. We are not fully perfected. We are being sanctified. You will endure bitter circumstances. You will endure trouble at times. But so that when you endure those bits of pieces of trouble and are tempted to say, I am bitter. Oh my, when you come into the desert place and it seems as if you are finding no drink and you're tempted to say, I am bitter. Instead, instead, you may be mindful that you may be mindful that he has already taken care of your greatest need. He has already taken care of your greatest need by what he accomplished for you on the cross. And that cross is the landmark of God's goodness and steadfast love and faithfulness towards you. And so then it assures your heart through today's trouble that he will not leave you or forsake you. His love for you will not run dry that somehow he is sovereignly working all things for your good. And in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of the bitterness that you come across, he will show himself faithful and glorious and good over and over again. And you can count on it. He is faithful, precious saints. Oh, Ruth chapter 1 ends in verse 22, with us being told that Naomi and Ruth have arrived at the beginning of the barley harvest. The harvest represented God's blessing. There was bread once again in Bethlehem. He's bringing life where there was death, fruitfulness where there was barrenness, good and unexpected things are beginning to happen in Bethlehem. 
Things Naomi and Ruth can't even imagine of the goodness of God. So this chapter ends with this sense, right? I said our God is such a good storyteller. This chapter ends with this sense of anticipation despite how Naomi feels. Despite what she feels. Here's what's true. God is up to good. (laughs) He is up to good. There is something happening. There is an unexpected reversal for Naomi and Ruth's lives, for his glory and for their good. He will provide a redeemer for them in Bethlehem. Someone to redeem their lives. And precious saints, as we see the Lord do that back in Ruth, we are going to see how he is providing and has provided a redeemer for all of his people throughout, throughout eternity, throughout his people's history, proving himself once again good, faithful, steadfast, in love, determined to do good to his people over and over and over again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what you have accomplished through Christ on the cross truly is the landmark of our faith. It's what we look back to to know that you will be faithful today. It's what we look to to remember that you love your people. It's what we look to to remember your determination to do good towards your people and that you will accomplish your plans and purposes. And so then what can we do? We can trust you. We can be people of hope, knowing you are up to good in the midst of trouble. So Lord, we pray. I pray for anyone who may be here, who may be experiencing bitterness, who may be experiencing bitterness of hurt and pain of the past, bitterness maybe even today, where they're saying, God, why have you dealt bitterly with me? And Lord, I pray you would point their eyes to the finished work of your son and say, oh, precious saint, look what I have already done for you. You are not empty. You are full. Lord, do your good work. Restore your people today. Encourage their hearts with faith and hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.